back down and shut your trap. It's time for keeping it sports with them three. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, I'll need some beer. Are you ready? You have to ask me nicely. Come on now, don't be bashful. Are you ready? place for the best sports talk and news surrounding each league. I can prove it with my usual flawless logic. Hey man, this time I'm gonna do it my way. Uh, what's your name again? And now, here's your host, M3, Mike Rosansky. Coming to you from Cherry Hill, New Jersey. It's time for Keeping It Sports with M3, powered by the Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Good afternoon, everyone. Hope everything's going well for you here on this Tuesday, the sixth day of December in 2022. You know, we've entered that time just about three weeks away from the big day. Of course, I'm talking about Christmas if you happen to celebrate that holiday. Now, I don't I don't really get offended this time of year when I hear people say happy holidays rather than Merry Christmas because, hey, you never know what the person that you're saying it to celebrates what they believe in. So to each their own. But this is the time of the year where we both want to give the best for our loved ones and hope for something nice under the tree for ourselves, especially if you're a sports fan. Now, sports fans salivate, look forward to the free agent frenzy to begin in every sport, but it doesn't seem like it's any more so than in baseball because in the other sports, Oh, everything happens almost immediately. Those are salary cap sports. The the big guys, yeah, they're going to get their money, but they want to make sure they get it right away. Otherwise, those options may not be available to them if they sit around and wait and take days and weeks. Usually you're you're seeing guys make a decision within Oh, the first 36 to 48 hours of the beginning of free agency in the NFL, NBA, and the NHL, mostly because there's that whole legalized tampering period, which to me does not make sense. But in Major League Baseball, things are more drawn out. And you're usually waiting from the time the World Series ends at the end of October, beginning of November, till around this point in the calendar, the first or second week of December, to see the big names start to drop, see the big moves start to happen. Now, you've seen some big, some movement already. There's been a lot of reliever action. What was the Mets resigning Diaz, uh, the the Astros resigning Rafael Montero, how they even made a big signing last week in adding uh, former all-star Jose Abreu as their new first baseman. But by and large part, the biggest free agents are still out there. We're still waiting on Aaron Judge. We're still waiting on some of these 
top starting pitchers. Although one made his decision right before the start of the weekend. And it's led to a lot of debate, a lot of discussion, a lot of opinions in this area. But I think what was the fear and the just honest belief of most New York Met fans came true over the last 72 hours as late Friday night, it was Jeff Passan to break the news that Jacob DeGrom is leaving the New York Mets to sign with the Texas Rangers for five years, $185 million with a six-year option that can bring it up to $222 million. Now, the AVA, uh, the the or the AAV, excuse me, is not what I'm surprised about. I figured it was going to be in the high 30s, hell, maybe even $40 million for an average annual salary for Jacob DeGrom. He's been one of the best pitchers, if not the best pitcher in baseball for the last six or seven years now. But I'm stunned about the number of years that he got when you consider the recent injury history that he has had. And you take 2020 out of the mix here where he only made you know 12 or 13 starts. Everybody only made that amount because it was a pandemic shortened season, a season that we've never seen before and hopefully we'll never see again. But then there cropped up the injury issues in 2021 where he didn't pitch past July. Then you had this season where he got hurt in his first spring training start and we didn't see him until uh, after the trade deadline. So it left a lot of wondering, oh, is he still going to opt out of his contract with all of these problems being the fact that he's a 32-year-old pitcher and still had two years guaranteed left on the contract. If he didn't opt out, well, he decided to opt out and take the huge uh, payday. And that's, that's what this is about to me. This isn't, this move does not feel like it is about winning. Because the Texas Rangers won 68 games last year. And this is coming off of a off season in which they were amongst the biggest spenders in the sport. They spent north of $100 million for Trevor Simeon. They went out there and threw a 10-year uh, uh, contract at Corey Seager. They spent big on the middle of their infield. Now they're spending big on their pitching, which has always been suspect and a large reason of why they have not been part of the conversation as far as contention goes in Major League Baseball for about eight or nine years now. 
ever since you know, Ron Washington led them to back-to-back World Series, they had slowly and surely fed, faded out of any contention conversation and were kind of a doormat to most teams in Major League Baseball. So they spent the big mucks showing that they are serious about wanting Jacob DeGrom uh, to be on their team and wanting to improve their pitching. And, you know, I can't blame them because he is a great pitcher. But that contract, the law of averages show you that contract is going to look hideous in the next couple of years. It's going to look really bad when you have a guy, as he's getting older, who's had these health problems, who has not changed up his pitching style one bit. He's still going out there trying to throw the the baseball 100 miles an hour on every fastball, throwing his slider north of 90 miles an hour, essentially being a two-pitch guy. And that, along with probably the pandemic shortened season, is a lot of the reason why we've been dealing with all of these injury issues over the last couple of years. And take into account that he's not the biggest guy in the world. And he prob- he's taller than me, but he probably weighs about the same. And the human body can only take too m- so much. There's only so many times you can go out there, throw your fastball 100 miles an hour before your body looks at you and says, no, I can't handle this. I can't do this. My, I am not physically capable of doing anything more. And listen, today, today's a, a day for Met fans where you're disappointed, you're heartbroken, and it's very understandable. Even if you were the whole time, you had this idea in the back of your mind that, oh, DeGrom's not coming back. He He's leaving. The fact that he keeps talking about his opt-out even while he was on the IL uh, during this year being that tone deaf, he was clearly showing the signs that he did not want to be a New York Met anymore. Even if you're of that mindset, there's no way that this cannot hurt you emotionally today because this was your guy. This was... You know, we all, as baseball fans, draw ourselves to the homegrown guy more so than the free agent or the guy that was traded for. You know, yeah, the the core four won won five World Series together. Bernie Williams won four World Series with that group. But they get a love and a, an infatuation and appreciation a level above the likes of Paul O'Neill, Tino Martinez, even if you want to throw Scott Brocious or David Wells or David Cohn in, in the mix there because those were homegrown guys. They came through the system. They were either drafted or scouted out of different countries um, by the Yankees' front office. So, you know, we, as Yankee fans, I know 
myself, we hold our love and, and gratitude for Jeter, Moe, Pettit, Posada, and Bernie closer than we do anybody else that was on the teams from 96 through 2009. That's why, you know, the fans were so hard on Alex Rodriguez when he came here, not just because of his quirky personality and big contract, but because he wasn't our guy. It took a, a, a long time for us to warm up to him, and I still think to a varying degree, probably really didn't by in large part uh, love Alex Rodriguez. And for Met fans, you know, that same thing applies. Yeah, you're happy that you got Max Scherzer in free agency last year. He's going to be a Hall of Famer at some point whenever his career ends. But he's not your guy. He came from the Nationals. He came up with uh, the Diamondbacks. The Mets were his fifth different team in his career. Jacob DeGrom was a guy that they drafted, developed. Hell, he wasn't even a highly touted prospect, but he just came out of nowhere in 2014. Never stopped pitching well, even despite all the poor run support that the Mets gave him from the day he came to the majors till the last day he threw a pitch for them. And was beloved by Met fans all along the way. Remember that group of young pitchers that came along? Harvey, Syndergaard, Zach Wheeler, and DeGrom. Well, he was the last man standing amongst them. He turned out to be the best amongst them. Although Wheeler is having pretty good success in his own right in Philadelphia. You just hoped if you were a Met fan, that he would be the forever Met. He would be the guy that is here his entire career, finally helps lead you get over that hurdle that you never got over with Mike Piazza, albeit he wasn't a homegrown Met, that you never got over with David Wright. And that is a Hall of Fame level player leading us to a World Series. So this stinks today if you're a Met fan. You're, you know, yeah, you, you probably saw this coming for the last five or six months, but it doesn't, it doesn't take away any of the heartbreak. Hell, I could just tell you by my own emotions. I'm not a Met fan, but I'm disappointed today. Because I've always made this loud and clear. I've never understood why there's this idea of a Mets-Yankees rivalry. Why there's this idea of these two fan bases that are so obsessed, especially on the Mets side of things, with being the team of the town. The only possible... They play the Subway Series every summer, but... Other than that, the only possible time that could decide that is the World Series. So I've I've never understood why there's that rivalry there. But for some reason, amongst some of the mostly younger members of the fan base, 
that does exist. But as a Yankee fan, I could tell you, unless the Yankees are playing the Mets, I don't root against the Mets. I don't hate the Mets. There are certain players I disliked along the way, such as Matt Harvey or Jose Reyes or Francisco Rodriguez. But by large part, I wish them well. And when over the years on nights DeGrom was pitching, I'd have the Yankees on my TV, but on my iPad here where I can watch TV on one of the apps, I'd have SMY on and watch Jacob DeGrom. That was appointment viewing for me. And I'm disappointed now that once every five days, I'm not going to get to see every start of one of the best pitchers of this last decade, a pitcher that despite his poor run support from his team, was putting on a Hall of Fame level pace with the Mets that you were hoping, if you were a Met fan, would finish his career as a Met. And you could talk about saying that you saw the second greatest pitcher in the history of the Mets franchise. And I, I true, he was never going to catch Seaver as far as greatness, but he would have surpassed Doc Gooden if he would have been a lifetime Met. And now that's not going to happen. And I could also speak as a fan, you know, essentially him taking all this money, because the Mets offered him a good deal. They offered him three years for $20 million, more money per year, but less total money. It, it stings in the fact that he's essentially saying he doesn't want to be here. And I know that in the next 72 hours, in all likelihood at the winter meetings, Aaron Judge is going to make a decision on his future. And if it's not with the New York Yankees, I'm going to feel disappointed, feel um, heartbroken, feel you know annoyed, feel like, hey, we let one of the best players ever developed in our franchise's history just walk out the door. So, no, it's a tough day if you're a Met fan. Now, if you're the Mets organization, you got to quickly pick up the pieces because there is things to do this offseason. You still got to figure out center field, whether it's re-signing Brandon Nimmo or not. And then you look at that pitching staff pretty much from your ace, Max Scherzer, to then your closer, Edwin Diaz, every spot in the middle is wide open. Every spot in the middle, you got to fill four spots in the rotation and at least five or six spots in that bullpen. There's only so many spots in there that you can fill from within without falling off your hoped trajectory of being a World Series contender this uh, coming season. So it sucks. It's, a, it's an annoying day, not just for Met fans, but I think, if we're being honest, all of New York sports fans. And while I wish Jacob DeGrom well, the Mets were wise not to match that offer. Texas Rangers, at some point during that contract, are going to be regretting that contract. And Met fans, you have every right to be feeling 
sad, hurt, and betrayed today. Not by the organization, but by one of your guys who you had hoped would be finally your forever met that got in the Hall of Fame. All right, a lot left to get to for the next about 40 minutes or so here. Give you some thoughts on uh, all of the football that went down uh, this weekend, including a disappointing uh, Sunday afternoon for the team yours truly roots for, the Jets. Uh, Kind of a a weird Sunday for the Giants, as as well as some quarterback injuries who are truly the contenders in – especially the NFC now, talk about some comments made by LeBron James, the college football. So a lot to get to. We're going to try and fit it all in here. And I just hope you just sit back, relax, help put your feet up if you have a table in front of you to do so. And please continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. This weekend was kind of a double whammy for the, should I say, traditional sports fans in this area. And what I mean by when I say a traditional sports fan in the tri-state area is most Met fans are Jet fans, most Yankee fans are Giant fans. Well, I'm starting to see as I go along in this crazy thing called life a lot more crossover, a lot more Met fans that are Giants fans and uh, Yankee fans that are Jets fans. But if you are that traditional fan, you know, you go from the disappointment and the heartbreak of losing Jacob DeGrom as a free agent on Friday night to a disappointing loss by the Jets on Sunday afternoon. And I'm not one to be in the idea of moral victories. I'm not one of these uh, that likes to sit there and be like, yeah, you know what? We competed hard. Yesterday's loss by the Jets annoyed me. It bothered me a a little bit. And And I wasn't so much annoyed at any one given player because if Zach Wilson was the quarterback of this team yesterday, the Jets would have never been competitive. The Jets probably would have laid an egg in the second half and would have got blown out by the Minnesota Vikings, who, to be honest, did nothing spectacular offensively yesterday. And the Jet defense did a pretty good job for the most part of containing Justin Jefferson. You you knew he was going to get his at some point, um, but it just turn out that the one time that they did not have Sauce guarding him on the right side there, he was able to uh, burn Reed for a touchdown. But this game, it came down to really the Jets not being able to take advantage of red zone opportunities. Even with us 
slow their offense got off to a start of. No, Mike White had this team in position to win the game in the end. Hell, they had plenty of opportunities in the second half to score, to come down and put up touchdowns, but they kept settling for field goal after field goal. They had all six drives in the second half were red zone opportunities that they had third and seven at uh, the Minnesota 18, settle for a 36-yard field goal by Zerline. Then you got first and goal at the six-yard line, but that gets pushed back because there was a an illegal block by uh, George Font that, to me, that play was not truly his fault. That, I think the, the blame there has to go on Berrios, who decided to cut outside rather than spin and go inside. And, you know, Font was, the purpose was to make the block on the outside defender, but the defender, because of Berrios' spin, had his back to Font rather than facing him straight up. So that kind of hurt. Had to settle for another field goal there. Then you get that uh, crazy 60-yard um catch and run by Garrett Wilson in which he barely tiptoes out of bounds um, in the the red zone. And of course the Jets have to settle for a third straight field goal drive. And all this while their defense had pretty much locked down this game. I mean, the, the Vikings had put up 20 against the Jet defense in the first half, got two rushing touchdowns downs by Cook and Madison, but in the second half, the Jets uh, really pinned their ears back and were shutting the Vikings down outside of one drive, and that one drive turned out to be the difference maker here with the fact that this offense just stalled each time in uh, the, the red zone. Other than the one time, you know, Mike White got the quarterback sneak. And to me, I don't even understand why they had to go to the replay. You could clearly see it, whether you were on the field watching the sky cam, whatever. Mike White is standing in the end zone with the football. I don't understand what the referees were watching there. But, hey, that's NFL officials for you uh, these days. But that would... No, I've only seen it once in my life where a team has won a game on just hitting field goals. That was that uh, Steelers-Bengals playoff game six, seven years ago with the uh, Vontez perfect hit on Antonio Brown that pretty much screwed up the rest of his life as we know it. And Pac-Man Jones getting thrown out of the game for uh, contact with an official there. Other than that, you're not going to win games slowly on field goals alone. And what bothered me here with the red zone offense is why they were seemingly getting away from the ground game. Because this, who knew that this kid, Bam Knight, was going to become such a important part of this offense, especially after the injuries to Brees Hall and whatever uh, Michael Carter is going through right now, 
causing him to miss yesterday's game. They've uncovered a, a an undrafted rookie here in uh, the Zonovan Knight that has added a little spark, added a little flavor to this offense in their ground game each of these uh, last two weeks, almost making the James Robinson trade feel like a waste of time with how uh, this kid is playing. But you have Mike White, who played well for the most part. I mean, if, if you went just by the stats alone and judging him on the two interceptions, I, I feel bad for you because – you clearly missed a guy that gave a lot of heart, a lot of grit out there to keep this team competitive. And having him throw 57 times, I don't think exactly was in the game plan. I thought they got away from the run a little too much, especially with Knight averaging six yards per carry. Sort of... Uh, really tried to jam it down Minnesota's throat, especially with how Minnesota had two long drives early in this game. Give your defense a, a little bit of a break. You know, that this offense sitting out there while Minnesota's driving down the field for two 12-yard uh, or 12-play drives early in this game, the offense is is getting uh, iced. The defense is you know, tiring out. Give your defense a little bit of a break and allow there to be multi-dimensions in this offense. A, a lot of why they were able to get so many red zone uh, opportunities in the second half is because White had to take chances uh, down the field. Wasn't just nickeling and diming them the whole time. Had to take some chances. And some of those chances, you know, you just look back and wonder what could have been. What could have been if Garrett Wilson didn't step out of bounds? You're talking about a 2019 game, maybe even a 2020 game if they go for the two-point conversion there. Or five minutes ago, you're down by five. And on first down, Mike White barely overthrows Garrett Wilson. Just by that much and we're talking about Garrett Wilson uh running in for a go ahead score and with the the way the jet defense played in that fourth quarter that might have been enough there and even after that you still had opportunities the fourth uh down pass to uh Corey Davis in between three defenders that if Hicks doesn't you know shoestring tackle him in there. We're talking about a go-ahead uh, touchdown with about three minutes to go. Late in that drive, you have Berrios drop a should-be touchdown on uh, fourth down in the end zone that proved to be a killer. I mean, there were just too many what-ifs in this game for your liking. So while you're Happy that this team has fight while they're playing competitive football here in the month of December. Have a chance to go to the postseason for the first time in years. You're disappointed with yesterday's loss. There's no other way around it. But the one thing you walk away from yesterday's loss telling yourself is, no matter what Robert Sala says to the media later today. What he says when he does 
his Monday afternoon weekly radio spot. Mike White has to remain the quarterback of this team for the remainder of the season. Unless there's an injury, there's no other reason to play anybody else at quarterback. He's looked the best with this Mike LaFleur offense. He's ran it better than Joe Flacco. Hell, miles and miles better than Zach Wilson, who didn't sit there with a sour puss on his face on the sidelines, actually looked engaged and involved uh, this week. And this team just seems to have an affection and a natural camaraderie with this guy that there's something about him, not just his play on the field, just something about him as a person that lifts this team up. And I'm not saying he's the long-term answer, but for this year, Mike White, unless proven completely wrong unless there's, he gets knocked out of the game against Buffalo this coming Sunday or there's some other um, unforeseen injury. He's got to be the guy. He gives the Jets their best chance of ending a decade-long playout of drought. And you know, I don't want the Jets to be relying on looking at the scoreboard every week when it comes to hopefully making the playoffs. I don't want to be sitting there rooting for other teams to help us out. You know, I'm sitting there during the four o'clock window rooting hard for Derek Carr and the Raiders to hold on to their two touchdown lead late in the game against the Chargers and uh, working their way back after some early miscues uh, only for the Chargers to have their typical second half charger in. I don't want to be sitting there as great of a game as Bengals Chiefs was. And now, you know, Joe Burrow has some kind of ownership over Patrick Mahomes that the the Chiefs are sitting there scratching their head wondering, how is it we can't beat this guy? We're, we're supposed to be, you know, the Michael Jordan Bulls or the Tom Brady Patriots of this era. And we just can't beat Joe Burrow. He's beat us three times in in a year. And this is coming off of them not having Jamar Chase for about a month. I don't want to be sitting there ho- leaving my hopes and prayers up to someone else. I want the Jets to get the job done themselves. It will feel more meaningful that way. I mean, I'll take getting in the playoffs any way I can. Jets winning games in their own right will feel more meaningful. Yesterday, I talk about it being a missed opportunity, not just with the red zone opportunities, but you look at what went on in the division. The Dolphins losing San Francisco to the 49ers, and I'll get more into that game in a few minutes. And then you've got this coming Sunday against the Buffalo Bills, where if the Jets win that game and sweep the season series, They would have the tiebreaker, but the Bills, after their win and beatdown win uh, on the Patriots uh, last Thursday night, running the ball right down their throat, their win combined with the Jets' loss now puts the Jets two games behind the Bills when it comes to possibly winning the division. But hey, 
it's still right there ahead of the New York Jets. It's still right there in front of them for them to be a playoff team this year. And hopefully they stick with Mike White for the remainder of this season so they don't waste the opportunity that is ahead of them. All right, going to take another break here, but come back on the other side and look at some of the things that what happened went on in the NFC this uh, weekend, as well as a couple of quarterback injuries that could change the trajectory of the entire NFL playoffs. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. More times than not, there is some piece of breaking news that will take place during the podcast while I'm recording the podcast. Well, I'll be saying, damn it, I wish I would have known that before I got started so that I could talk about it and didn't have to wait until the following week to discuss it or give some reaction to. Well, That's not the case this week because breaking news, according to SMY's Andy Martino, the New York Mets are in agreement with the reigning AL Cy Young winner, Justin Verlander, on a two-year, $86 million contract with a vesting option for a third year. And listen... While the guy is 40 years old, he's a year or two years removed from Tommy John surgery, this was a must-have move for the New York Mets. You could not just sit around and wait and hope for something good to happen after losing Jacob DeGrom. This is a move that is about the now. It's showing that, yeah, Verlander... He's got some mileage on him. He's 40 years old, and we can't expect him to go out there and make 35 starts and pitch you know, 235 innings anymore. But somewhere between that 27 to maybe even 31 starts mark, maybe that's being too much. That's what we need out of this guy. That's what we need for him uh, to give us, pair with Max Scherzer, and have a two-headed monster at the top of our rotation to go into this season with. So that is a, a very good move for the New York Mets. Had to come away with a big-time pitcher here. And now their offseason can truly, truly begin here. So if you're a Mets fan... This, yeah, you're still disappointed over losing Jacob to Grom, but this should take away a little bit of a sting from it. Replacing a former multi-time Cy Young winner with a former 
multi-time American League Cy Young and MVP winner and future Hall of Famer in his own right. If And this year showed us Justin Verlander still has plenty left in the tank. Plus, on a positive note for all of us, who are we going to get to see on SNY at a lot of these games now? Hmm? Think about it. That's right. The gorgeous Kate... H- Kate Upton will be front row at a lot of Justin Verlander's starts at City Field. So that's always a positive thing. Okay, now let's get back to the real sports here or the real sports conversation because, you know, we talk about the AFC before and how it was missed opportunity for the Jets. Well, opportunity, I feel, has been opened for teams in the NFC. Well, you still have the Eagles at the top. They still are the likeliest team to be having home field advantage throughout the NFC portion of the postseason. I have felt for the last couple of weeks now that their biggest challenger, the biggest struggle for them in uh, the postseason could be potentially the San Francisco 49ers because the 49ers have all of the ingredients you need to win a Super Bowl. You have a great ground game now led by Christian McCaffrey, a ferocious defense that on all three levels is just a pain in the ass to deal with, especially uh, with uh, Nick Bosa there, essentially an unstoppable monster. And he let Tua know that yesterday. And a quarterback that will not make mistakes, will not be the reason that you win the game, but in all likelihood will not be the reason why you lose the game. But now you've lost a piece of that ingredient. And not just not just as a sports fan, but as a person, I feel bad for Jimmy Garoppolo because A, it feels like he can never catch a break here. He uh, can never ha- have just a moment to be truly happy. Whether it be sitting behind Tom Brady for a while, then he gets traded to the 49ers with some injuries before they get to a Super Bowl and they let up a 10-point lead in the fourth quarter of that Super Bowl. Now you've had for the last couple of years – them trying to replace him, Kyle Shanahan, um, um, almost looking to throw him right out the door for Trey Lance. There was nowhere for him to go. He comes back as the backup. Trey Lance gets hurt, and he's leading this team on this really good run here, uh, looking like one of the top teams in not just the NFC, but in all of the NFL. And first drive of the game yesterday, he leaves with a broken foot season over. So now enters Brock Purdy, last year's Mr. Irrelevant in the NFL draft. 
and I don't think this is going to be as easy as, oh, just don't go out there and make any mistakes, kid. Uh, let the ground game and the defense carry the way like I've seen most people on TV talk about this morning. Because you're while we all agree Jimmy Garoppolo was not the sole focus, the leading reason behind them winning games. He was probably fourth on the list behind the ground game, behind Kyle Shanahan, behind that, especially that defense. You've seen over the last several years in the Jimmy Garoppolo era, this team plays at its best with him out there. They're winning like two-thirds of his games or the games that they play with him out there and only winning about 30% of the games when he's not out there. I mean, you look at the numbers. They average 27 points a game and are, have a 38-17 and 17 record with him. He's thrown for 80 touchdowns and 40, only 42 interceptions over the course of those games. While anybody else you put out there, whether it be injury or trying to replace him with Trey Lance, they've struggled. They, they score about seven less points per game, have about a one-to-one touchdown-to-interception uh, ratio, and have only won 30% of those games without Jimmy Garoppolo in the, the starting lineup. And there's a reason why a guy like Brock Purdy went all the way until the final pick of the NFL draft before being selected. So people think that, oh, it's just this simple thing. Plug and play. No. You, know, you look at you look at these guys like what Taylor Heineke's doing in Washington, and they battled back to tie the Giants yesterday. Or you look at uh, what Mike White is currently uh, doing with the Jets. They didn't just these guys who were late round draft picks. They weren't just thrown out there to the Wolves and said, "Oh, go get them, kid." They sat there and watched for a while, learned from people ahead of them, learned how to do it, uh, learned how to fit into their offensive schemes the right way. And then when the opportunity was given to them, they went out there and they performed. And because they were good guys about it, because they won over the locker room, it uplifted the team. You know, Brock Purdy probably hasn't been around taking reps with the top guys as much as you would think. And if they were you know, truly committed to him, then why are they bringing in Josh Johnson off the free agent wire. So to me, this is a this is a very tenuous situation here for the 49ers. And if if you're a 49ers fan today, you really should be, you know, sitting on your hands, you know, praying that Party can just be plug and play and not screw things up because you had a really good thing going. You had the team that looked like it was the best shot to slow down the Philadelphia Eagles. And 
that right now is all you can hope for is slowing down the Eagles. Each week the Eagles are showing they can find a different way to beat you. They, whether it's last week and running for almost 400 yards uh, against uh, Rodgers and the Packers, or yesterday just putting on a clinic against that Titans secondary and A.J. Brown having a field day while taunting uh, the Titans all day. They have so many ways to uh, beat you, mixing in a quarterback that is developing right before our eyes in Jalen Hurts who can throw for 400 yards or have a a buck 50 on the ground and run for a couple of uh, touchdowns if the air attack is not working that night. And they're not, unless I've missed something, they're not missing anybody on that offense. They haven't had that, you know, devastating injury that seems to hit every team uh, along the way, whether it be with the Niners and now losing a second quarterback during this season or the Cowboys who have been without Tyrone Smith on that offense dealt with a month without Dak Prescott, the Buccaneers having injuries on their offensive line, Uh, the Packers and the mess that they've been all year long, the Giants essentially running out practice squad guys now to fill out a hopefully somewhat competitive offense. Now, the the Eagles haven't dealt like that. So it it feels like right now you're looking at the NFC and wondering, who is it? Who could be that team that does this? Could it it be the Cowboys after last night's shellacking of the Colts? And, you know, you want to give the Colts credit for being competitive, being cute there for a little bit. But I think the magic carpet ride for this Jeff Saturday experiment has finally ran out. You know, it was cute the first week. You you went out there and got a victory. But each of the last couple of weeks, the losses have been getting worse and worse. And now last night, giving up 33 in the fourth quarter, having Four consecutive drives end with a turnover, including one of your former players, Malik Hooker, uh, recovering a fumble uh, for a touchdown. And Matt Ryan, every time he dropped back last night, was getting hit in that fourth quarter. And now the Cowboys have figured out the right mix as far as their ground game is concerned and how much Dak Prescott throws the football. That's why I maybe I'm the contrarian here. I'm almost in the mindset right now of I wouldn't bring in Odell Beckham Jr. As great as he is, I'd I would be worried about ruining the mix here, ruining the the good vibe that you have on this offense. I know there's always the thought you can never have too many good players, but this might be an occasion where you do have too many chefs in the kitchen. And listen, Odell's grown up. He's more mature than he was when he 
first left the Giants and um, went to the Cleveland Browns. But who knows how he's going to accept essentially being the number three guy on the Dallas Cowboys. To me, he'd almost be better off going to either the Giants or going to the Baltimore Ravens, who now need and could use all the help they can get with who knows how long this injury that Lamar Jackson has. He's They say it's day-to-day or a day-to-week, but remember, it was around this time last year he got hurt, missed the rest of the season, and they fell completely out of it. They were four, eight and four this time last year and fell apart with Lamar's injury. They're now eight and four once again after barely squeaking by the Denver Broncos yesterday. They could surely use some offensive help, some offensive support because their offense, they're lucky they've played the Broncos and Panthers each of the last two weeks because their offense has not impressed anybody one bit. As far as the Giants and the Commanders go yesterday with them finishing in that 20-all tie, that could turn out to be a saving grace for both of these teams. Because you're starting to see some of these teams that are in the bottom, that are in the hunt, like a a Detroit Lions, that are starting to surge up a bit. That tie could prevent you from having the same amount of losses as them at the end of the season. And in the case of the Giants who lost to Detroit uh, a couple of weeks ago, that could very much come in handy there. And you're not exactly sure how you're walking out of Mets Life Stadium feeling yesterday, but when you stop and think about it, the tie might not be the worst thing in the world. And we'll see how you rebound from that with division opponents coming up each in the next two weeks. All right, going to take one last break, come back on the other side, and close things out for this week. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Once again, the breaking news of the day is the Mets have signed Justin Verlander to a two-year, $86 million contract with a third-year vesting option. That news coming via SMY's Andy Martino. Hopefully, with the winter meetings getting started last night, we'll have a lot more news to talk about with both the Mets and the Yankees in next week's podcast. I typically don't talk about things that I see on social media uh, on uh, the podcast here, but I'm sure most of you guys have seen the Steph Curry video from uh, over the weekend where it's right after a practice or right after 
I guess some photo shoot that he took part in. And he starts chucking basketballs full court uh, down toward the other hoop like they're a football and drained each one of them. Didn't even uh, uh, bang them off the backboard. And no, I'm still trying to decide myself, is this real or is this fake? I mean, listen, we're talking about the greatest shooter of all time, so I wouldn't put anything past him. But to make five consecutive shots like that, full court, throwing the basketball like it's a football, that was just insane watching that. Now, what's also insane, and this is something that I don't think gets talked about as much, is what Spencer Dimwitty uh, brought up a couple of days ago, saying that NBA official Tony Brothers was forced to sit out a game assignment after he called him a bleep-ass mother-you-know-what on the court during a game. Now, you, you can fill in the blanks there on what I r- really said there. But this was not considered a suspension without pay. The The NBA didn't put out any press release or announce any punishment. I got to be honest. You know, as a fan, I like full transparency in sports. We hold the athletes. We hold the coaches. We hold front office executives to a level of accountability. Why don't we do that with the officials? Huh? Why do we not do that with them? Why is it that, oh, when a coach gets out of line and gets ejected, we hear about their fine or their suspension? Same with a player. Or there's some kind of allegation during uh, – against an organization, there's a fine or suspension toward a front office member, like in the case of the Houston Astros cheating scandal. But whenever there's something going on involving an official in any sport, unless it's to the level of the Tim Donahue gambling scandal, why don't we ever hear about this stuff? Why don't we ever hear about punishments for the referees, they like to act like they're the third team out there anyway. They like to act like they're a part of this. Why do we protect them? Why do we pander to them? Why do we kiss their ass and not announce when they do something stupid? Excuse me. Why is it they get that free pass that these players and coaches and front office people are not afforded? This should have been streamed across the bottom line on ESPN, Fox Sports 1, any of these sports channels. And instead, we got to hear about this from Spencer Dimwitty on his uh, social media account or uh, on a podcast somewhere, all right? Not just to the NBA, during to all of professional sports, do better. Hold your officials to an accountability that we hold Everybody, too. They do not deserve a free pass. We're beyond the point where officials should just get their rear ends kissed 
when it comes to them getting punished for doing or saying something stupid. Now, I didn't talk about this last week, and I apologize for not getting to this because this is can be considered a sensitive subject. To me, is a serious subject. I just split my mind and was something I should have talked about last week. But what has gotten some attention in the last two weeks is the photo that was released or published by the Washington Post of Jerry Jones. This photo was taken back in 1957. When Jerry Jones uh, was only 14, 15 years old, it shows him as a teenager standing with a group of white classmates at his school in Arkansas in what looks like the white classmates preventing six black students from entering the school. Now, to be fair... We don't know what Jerry Jones' intentions are in this photo because he's not one of the aggressors in the front. He's not, you you could see who's the aggressors here. You could see in this photo who's standing out front and blocking. Jerry Jones is kind of almost in the background amongst the the white teenagers. And you're not truly sure what his intentions are. Uh, here were um, as a sophomore at North Little Rock High School. And he has come out and said since then, uh, since this article was published, because the main reason that this uh, photo came to light is an article was published uh, emphasizing Jerry Jones' failure um, to hire a black coach amongst his years as the owner, uh, CEO, and president of the Dallas Cowboys and talking about the NFL's failure to promote black coaches over the years. And Jerry Jones's response to this photo was, quote, I don't know that I or anybody uh, anticipated or had a background of knowing what was involved. It was more of a curiosity thing. Since then, it feels like that story kind of faded. And LeBron James was wondering why. I want you guys to hear these quotes that he said last week uh, during his post-game press conference after playing uh, the uh, Portland Trailblazers. I was wondering why I haven't gotten a question from you guys about the Jerry Jones photo. But when the Kyrie thing was going on, you guys were quick to ask us questions about that. Okay. Um, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. And I don't even want you guys to say nothing. When I watched Kyrie talk and he says, I know who I am, but I want to keep the same energy when we're talking about my people and the things that we've been through. And that Jerry Jones photo is one of those moments that our people, black people, have been through in America. And I feel like it's 
black man, as a black athlete, as someone with power and a platform, when we do something wrong or, or something that people don't agree with, it's on every single tabloid, every single news coverage, it's on the bottom ticker, it's asked about every single day. But it seems like to me that the whole Jerry Jones situation photo, and I know it was years and years ago and we all make mistakes, I get it. But it seemed like it's just been buried under like, oh, it happened, okay, we just, we just move on. And I was just kind of disappointed that I haven't received that question from you guys. He's right and he's wrong both at the same time. He's right in the fact that there has not been the same outrage. There's not been the same, you know, everyday commentary on this as Kyrie. And maybe it's because what Kyrie has done and said, not just with uh, the sharing of that uh, promotion for the documentary uh, recently, but you know what he he did when it came to vaccination or uh, when he left the team at the Nets after the January sixth Capitol attacks. Maybe because it's going on in present day and, you know, every day there seems to be something else with Kyrie that, you know, he makes the narrative surrounding him look worse and worse. Maybe that's the one reason why we have been so much on that and made that an everyday story compared to a photo of Jerry Jones from when he was a teenager that was 65 years ago. And we like to believe that as a society, we've evolved past that point of the way things were with segregation uh, back in that day. But clearly, unfortunately, racism still does exist in this country. And I'm not sure if we're not given the same veracity, same attention to uh, the Jerry Jones uh, of situation versus the Kyrie situation based on race. Not, I can't sit here and tell you uh, that. I can't sit here and tell you that. But I can sit here and tell you that I can't get in the head of a black man, woman, child and tell them how to feel, I can only sit here, listen to them, and educate myself based on the things they say, based on how they feel and how they feel there's not an equal treatment on things. But here's where LeBron is wrong about this. If you have thoughts, opinions about the Jerry Jones situation, which you know, he didn't go into full contacts on that. I mean, because he probably could have done an hour long press conference talking about his opinion on that, which he's has every right to say, has every right to be out there with, because it, it's not like he, as I said before, 
It's not like when these guys give opinions on real life stuff, real world stuff, whether it be politics, whether it be, in this case, social justice issues. It's not like they're stopping the games and bringing a podium out in the middle of the field or court to do so. They're doing it either pre-games uh, when talking to a member of the media or post-game. They handle their business on the field, and then uh, when they get back to being the real them, the real person rather than the athlete, then they use the platform that has been provided to them to express those opinions. And that's why so many people uh, who disagree with their opinions have a problem with them. It's because, oh, they don't have that platform to yell and scream about it. But if you're LeBron, why are you waiting to be asked about it? If you have those opinions, just come up right out and say it. No, rather than going into the whole diatribe uh, at your press conference saying, asking, hey, uh, I was wondering why you guys ha- haven't asked me a question. Why you? Why did you wait until 10 days after the fact as the story like you said, is faded, started to fade away and not gotten the same attention as Kyrie and everything uh, with him. Right when it comes, right when it happens, you know, first post game press conference. As long as it, you know it's not some kind of debilitating loss for the Lakers, come right out and say, "Hey guys, can I have a couple of minutes here to talk about?" something that's more important than the game. I want to get this out there. I got some thoughts about this. Why wait? Why wait to be asked? Now that, that like I said, you know, LeBron is, LeBron is such a, a confounding figure because he, he's a great man, great player. But, you know, at, at times, you know, he... he can take stories and make them what they're not supposed to be. Don't wait for us to ask. You, you're you probably as powerful or the most powerful athlete in all of sports. You've always had this platform in front of you for the last 21 years. Use it and tell us what you're thinking. Don't wait to be asked uh, uh, about it because that's – when people are going to rip and criticize you. And finally, yesterday, the college football playoff was announced. On Saturday, December 31st, we're going to have number two, Michigan, versus number three, TCU, in the Fiesta Bowl at at 4 p.m. And then at 8 o'clock, it will be number one Georgia against number four Ohio State in the Peach Bowl with the winners meeting up at SoFi Stadium on Monday, January 9th to decide the national champion. And, you know, this time last week I was saying, would there be any chaos? Would there be any unexpectedness? Because you had Georgia, uh, TCU, Michigan, and USC all playing in conference championship games. Well, Georgia and Michigan held serve. They did what they were supposed to do. 
and they were pretty much locks no matter what happened, even if they had uh, fallen in their respective conference title games. But the question was going to become, what if TCU or USC lost? Well, USC added some chaos to this with their blowout loss to Utah on Friday night. And the big thing here is, you know, Caleb Williams, give the kid a lot of credit. He was playing the second half of this game on one leg. But the USC could not make a tackle to save their life after the first quarter. And Cam Rising played a pretty good game, but the Utah ground game just ran all over uh, the USC. And you're watching missed tackle after missed tackle. You're seeing uh, Utah out there, you know, making these 50, 60 yard uh, touchdown runs and catches. And they, they, it was like you were playing a college football video game with how they were avoiding these tackles uh, left and right as that game went on. And although they played some good teams on their schedule, you knew with Ohio State at five breathing down their neck, even with them not playing, with the wins that they had already in their back pocket against Notre Dame and Penn State, if USC even slightly slipped up, that they were going to be out of the mix because losing the Pac-12 championship game will not give you as much of a free pass as, say, losing in the SEC championship game or the Big Ten championship game. And with USC already having one loss on their mark, having a second loss killed any chance of them being in the playoff. Now, TCU, on the other hand, Yes, they lost to Kansas State, and they were sloppy as hell in the in the first ha- half of this game. You had uh, Quinton Johnston uh, with the fumble at a time where they could have gone in for a game tying score. Uh, the, Duggan throws an interception in the red zone that kind of set them back there early in the fourth quarter, and they just had to uh, scramble for. Uh, uh, forcing overtime here before uh, there was stuff at the goal line on their initial drive and then lost on a walk-off uh, field goal to uh, K-State. But at least, A, they weren't blown out here. And B, they lost to a team that was in the top 15 of the rankings. You know, Kansas State, in the yesterday's most recent rankings, was put at number 10. It's not like they were an unranked team with five losses or a team that uh, is out of some um, minor conference. This is a pretty good team that they lost to by a field goal in overtime. And you look at TCU's schedule this year. They beat five teams that were all ranked in the top 20 at the time that they played them. They blew out Oklahoma earlier this year. They went to Kansas and won by a touchdown. Uh, one in double OT against Oklahoma State. They had already beat K-State earlier uh, the, this year and beat Texas in Texas at a time where Texas was surging and looking like maybe they can make a late run for the Big 12 championship game. And 
listen, I know there's the Alabama fans sitting there crying today, bitching and moaning, saying, what about us? What about us? You know why I know they're doing that? Because your boy, Nick Saban, was on every television station, every halftime show that would listen to him over the weekend, politicking and campaigning to get Alabama in the playoff. Well, look at Alabama. They had no impressive wins this year. Their wins against Arkansas and Ole Miss lost value as the season went along. Those teams fell apart. They had a one-point win against Texas in a game in which Texas was playing a backup quarterback. And they lost to two teams in Tennessee and, and LSU, including LSU that beat them in on their home field. And LSU went to the SEC title game and got whacked around by Georgia. They didn't have the impressive wins on uh, the table like a TCU did or Ohio State in beating Notre Dame in the first week and then going to Penn State and uh, beating up on them in October. Sorry, Nick. All right. The sport's not about kissing your ass. All right. We can go on with having the college football playoff without you guys for once. The, the world's going to keep spinning. The sun's going to keep hopefully coming up every single morning. And life is going to be okay, even if Alabama is not playing in the college football playoff. You're just going to have to deal with it and hopefully do better next year. And that, my friends, was Keeping It Sports with M3 for Tuesday, December 6th, 2022. Everyone, please have a great night. Have a fun, safe, happy, healthy week. Stay safe in whatever you may be doing. And I'll talk to you guys again same time next week. Until then, peace. We have to go. Good night, everybody. I have had enough of you. Thank you for all the fun. Thank you. Hey, shut up, will ya? I don't want to see you, I don't want to hear you, and I don't want to smell you. Now leave. I'll be back.